So if you would turn with me to the book of Ruth, we're going to take the first five verses today. For the rest of the series, we'll basically do a chapter a week. But there's a lot going on in the first five verses of Ruth, and it warrants some particular attention because it helps give us some context for the rest of the story as it unfolds. So I invite you to turn there and stand with me if you would. Hear God's word as it is read aloud. The text is printed for you in your program on page 11 as as well as an outline. You can turn there too if you'd like. Hear God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Paphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, the, the stories that we hear, the truth that we declare, the hope that we cling to, it all points to you, to you, the one who is the great rescuer, our loving and kind Father. So even today, would I decrease, for our desire is to see Jesus and him only, not exactly the expected, hey, it's Christmas time, so let's turn to the Old Testament and preach out of Ruth. There are some beautiful things that God has done. Because when you think about it, the Bible from start to finish is not a, the Bible's not a book of virtues. Can we just go ahead and clear that up really quick? The, Bible, the Bible's not a, a book of virtues. Now, when I, was, when I was preparing for this sermon, I was, you know, I'll occasionally look around and see what other people have done, how they've approached a particular topic or passage or whatever. And I saw one, uh, one example of someone who had preached through Ruth, and they said that this was a book, it was a great, like, principles for a godly marriage. And I go... I don't, I don't think that's what the point was of that. I mean, sure, Boaz did some amazing things, and Ruth did some amazing things, and we see God doing some amazing things in the midst, but I don't think that's what it was. But that's the danger that you run into when you see the Bible as simply a book of virtues. The reality, though, is that the Bible is not a book of, of virtues. It's not a book that simply just uh, we should read because it contains good stories, Because a lot of times, the stuff that's written in the Bible is really hard stuff to hear. 
And it wasn't put there because it's inspirational necessarily. It's put there because it was true. And because it's your history and it's my history. Now, the, rather, the, Bible, the Bible from start to finish, from cover to cover, is, is about a God of mercy and long-suffering who continually works in and through the world despite our constant resistance to his purposes. The Bible is about God in his redeeming, pursuing love, pursuing and rescuing and redeeming and ransoming his people. So there is some discussion in scholarly circles about where the book of Ruth fits in all of that. If you look at if you look at, for instance, the, the Jewish canon, it actually fits in a different spot than it does here. Some later critics have said that Ruth is a, is a story of oppression and a story of, well, no, story. A snapshot of one particular family in a really complicated time. It's a snapshot of history showing us how amid all of life's circumstances, even the ones that are the most dire and bleak, God is always at work, always patiently and lovingly bringing forth the grace and redemption that he has promised, even when it seems that all hope is lost. Now, that doesn't mean that life automatically has a happy ending, at least in the way that we envision it. It's not in the way that you have a 45-minute sitcom or an hour-and-a-half movie or whatever, and all of a sudden everything resolves itself neatly and, and, and tidily at the end. But, it, there, but there is a promise because of the one who, in whose name we gather and whose advent we remember and whose second coming we long for, there is the promise that because that story is true and because God is still at work in the world, that there will in fact be an ending that we can rightly say there is a happy ending to how the story ends. And the beautiful thing about the story of Ruth is it is a picture of a foretaste of that. Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, when he was walking on the Emmaus Road, that all of the scriptures, everything recorded up until that point in the scriptures, all of the scriptures were about him. And so he began with Moses and the prophets to unfold for them right there on the Emmaus Road how everything pointed to him. It is easy when you read the book of Ruth to get caught up in the characters, and we should. It's a great story. It's such a a well-told story. It's easy to say, wow, there are some amazing things that Ruth did and to find that we feel like we should emulate some of those things. It's easy to look at the things that, that, that Boaz did, the way that Boaz acted in a noble and an honorable way. And say, man, that looks like something that we should really do. But the character, the true character that's at play all throughout the story of Ruth is the Lord. God has been at work all the time, even when it doesn't look like he's working. And beloved, I'm going to tell you something. 
That is something that I so often forget. That when the circumstances look bad, I presume not just that God is not at work, but that God is actively now against me because I must have done something wrong. And if there's one thing that I need to hear over and over and over. There's a lot to unpack here. The outline I gave you in your program, Laura asked me, are you still good with your outline? Sometimes I change my outline. And she would like to know before she prints the program. (laughs) I said, if there's any outline in the world that I'm sure of, it's this one. (laughs) Because it's five verses and we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the context Uh, which we get in verse 1. We're going to talk about the names of the characters, and then we're going to talk about some of the crises that show up here in the book of Ruth. Verse 1, here's the context right off the bat. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, some of you remember uh, in the greatest hits of Metrocraft sermons that some years ago, I tackled the book of Judges in a preaching series. What was I thinking? Judges is not a pleasant book. Judges is a story about God's people over and over and over and over and over again. Forgetting God. You remember that, it, that God's people were commissioned to go and actually go in and take the promised land. They were going to go into Canaan and take the promised land. They were not to defile themselves with foreign idols, foreign deities. They were to go and take the promised land. But then the question of good enough came in. This seems really hard. There's a lot of armies. Can we just camp out here? And good enough settled in. It was a bad time. Dickens said it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. This was definitely not one of the best of times in Israel's history. This isn't just a time stamp, though, by the way. This isn't just like four score and, and seven years ago. This is a theological marker. This is to tell you in one short sentence exactly what was going on in the time in which Naomi and Elimelech and their family was living. So really quick recap here of Judges. If you want a recap of the book of Judges, if you want a recap of what was happening in Israel's history during the time of the Judges, it was this. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says this, And in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did as seemed best in their own eyes. At that time, everyone said, whatever, it's good. Let me be me. Judges works like this. Here's the cycle. With some regularity, the people of God rebel. God is angry. God judges his people either by letting a, uh, letting an, a hostile army come in and attack them and defeat them or by bringing a famine to the land. The people cry out and repent. God raises up a judge who brings a temporary salvation to the people. There's peace for a time. The judge dies. The people forget. The cycle renews. As you get later into judges, the judges are a little bit more questionable. The people are a little more forgetful. 
And just so we're clear, whenever people forget God, the result is never for the better. The last four chapters of Judges ends in some of the bleakest, most horrific, hostile things ever recorded on the pages of Holy Scripture. And you would say, rightly, why is this in the Bible? And where is the good news? God's people were acting in such a way that was so evil, so rotten, so terrible, that the reader of history would be surprised that there was even an Israel left to be called Israel. And yet, grace abounded to God's people. Why? If you hear nothing else of what I say this morning, hear this. Why did God show grace to his people then? Why does God show grace to you and I now? Because God promised that the sin-broken world in which we live would not get the last word. God would rescue a people to be a blessing to the world, to declare and demonstrate and delight in the worship of God through his Son by the power of his Spirit. And any success of this mission that had people, people just like you and I, at the center of it, would have to have we would have to rely on the faithfulness of God, our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God that would achieve the work in the world rather than the forgetful fickleness of the people that would be you and I. Neither the gates of hell nor God's own people would get in the way of his gracious work of redemption. Do you want to know where the grace was at the end of the book of Judges? God still didn't forget his people. You know what the grace is for you and I? God still doesn't forget his people, right? One of the things that we see in the book of Ruth is that God's work was not an entirely future work, right? One of the things that we see in the book of Ruth is that it was arguably the worst of times for God's people to be living, and yet God was still active to advance his plan of redemption. A godly remnant remained faithful in these bleak times, and God worked through them to do more than they could have ever imagined. So when you open the book of Ruth and you look at verse 1 and you read, in the days when the judges ruled, that's what's going on. Things are really bad. And not only were they really bad for the nation of Israel, they were really bad for God's people because not only was their sin rampant, did every, not only was everyone living as he saw right in his own eyes, but also there was a food shortage there was a famine. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
So that's the context in which we live. The next thing that we need to know to understand what's happening in the book of Ruth is to understand that in Hebrew literature, because this was primarily an oral culture, the way that you could create a very clear picture of what's going on was in how the story was told, and how the story was told. Names in the Bible are significant. Names in the Bible have a lot of different purposes. Names could signify an important event in the life of the nation or in the life of the family. For instance, it was in our family where after all that we went through in Nate's uh, in, in Jen's pregnancy with Nate, we decided that his name should be Nathaniel, which is the Hebrew name for given by God. As just a reminder to us of this kind of moment that happened in our, in our family. Names might be anticipatory. Names might be prophetic. Names can be important in unlocking an important truth in a story. So you'll remember there's a very famous, well-known story in the Old Testament about a man and a fish and a place called Nineveh, right? Jonah, the Hebrew, it would be Jonah ben Amittai. The name Jonah means silly or senseless dove. Amitai, faithfulness. Ben Amitai, son of my faithfulness. Silly and senseless dove, son of my faithfulness. How do the names ring out in Ruth? Well, Elimelech, literally means, my God is king. Naomi means sweet or pleasant. Now, when it comes to the names of the two sons, Malon and Kilion, Malon means sickly or weak. Kilion means frail. Bethlehem was the house of bread. What about Moab? Well, if you look at the history of Israel, if we were to try and put it in contemporary context, and I mean nothing, I mean I mean I mean nothing ill by this, the Moabites would have been the hillbilly cousins of Israel. That is to know degradation of anyone who has hillbilly cousins, by the way. I'm just giving you context. They were the results, the, the, the people, the Moabites were the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. In Hebrew, Mo means who, and Ab means Father. So Moab, reflecting its murky origin, is the land of, and I'm sorry, 
It's the land of who's your daddy. Now, I'm going to put all of this into context for you in just a minute. But let's be clear here. Bad time in Israel, not the best of times. Bad things are happening. A famine has struck. And so once again, we're left with that age-old question. What do we do when a crisis seems imminent and God seems far away? What do we do when a crisis seems when a crisis is imminent and God seems far away? Do we trust him? Or do we do what we feel like we must in order to save ourselves? So let's look a little bit now at some of the crises. This is where we'll kind of spend the rest of our time. In order to do that, I'm going to reread the text for you, but I'm going to read the text for you with the uh, English approximation of their names substituted in. It, it helps us to hear the story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of the house of bread in Judah went to sojourn in the country of who's your daddy? He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was my, was my God as king, and the name of his wife, Pleasant. And the name of his two sons were weak and frail. They were Epaphrathites from the house of bread in Judah. And they went into the country of who's your daddy and remained there. Here's the first crisis. God seemed distant. Now, here's Israel. You remember, by the way, that place where you were had significant meaning. It was important. We live in a day and age where if you have a toll tag and a car, place doesn't matter. You need to drive 45 minutes to go pick something up, go drive 45 minutes to pick something up. For them, place was sacred. This promised land was the place that God had given them. And yet, because of Israel's disobedience, as a nation, as a people, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did as they saw best, as they saw fit in their own eyes. Natural consequences because of sin came into the land, and a famine struck. The irony of that is thick. For Bethlehem was the house of bread, and there was no bread to be had in Bethlehem. There's a crisis because God seems distant. The immediate need of bread was far outweighing the more substantial, the more significant need of God's people to see and acknowledge their sin, to repent, and to wait on the Lord. So Elimelech took matters into his own hand. He took his family off of his family's land. So not only was place significant in terms of God's relationship with God's people, place was also significant because the place was the land that produced the crop that gave your family food, that gave your family income, that gave your family status. You see where I'm going with this? He gets up and leaves his family land and goes and he sojourns. This is not, by the way, a tourist visa. 
He is going now to a foreign land, to a pagan land, to basically give himself over as a slave because having bread to eat seemed more needful than to wait on the Lord. So he could stay. He had a choice, right? He could stay in Bethlehem, the empty bread basket of Judah, mourning the sin that surrounded him and trusting God to provide for him or take matters into his own hands, leave the promised land in search of greener fields, in this case, into the fields of Moab, where food was much, was much more abundant. Now, here's the thing. Before we get all, oh, Elimelech, if only you knew. Before we do that, let me just say, lovingly, There's a possibility that you and I, friends, are not that different from Elimelech. We face moments of choice every single day of our lives where the things that weigh the most heavily on us are what we're going to do and what's what's going to be provided for us and whether or not our comfort and our security will be met. We make decisions every single day that don't have God's greater purposes in mind. They instead have, as the more weighty, the more pressing, the more influential factor is not, is this what God wants for my life in the kingdom? It's, am I going to be comfortable? Am I going to be safe? Am I going to be well provided for? Friends, here's the thing. When our comfort and our success is on the line, We live as Elimelech did, acting out as our own sovereign. We act out as our own sovereign ruler. We make choices that seem best in our own eyes. Without reference to God and without serious thought to its long-term implications. In fact, it could be said that many of us bear the name Christian, yet our Christianity has very little impact on our life and our decisions. And I'm not talking about do I get up and go to church on Sunday or not. I'm not talking about do I say Merry Christmas or not. I'm talking about the little things, all of the little things in your life, all the little things in my life that give evidence and that give credence to the name of Christ who we bear. Because, I mean, let's, let's, let's face it, Elimelech, His name meant, my God is king. And yet, he lived in a way that made it evident that God wasn't his king at all. Here's the thing. Our choices 
in life most often reveal the deepest commitments of our heart. Our choices reveal the deepest commitments of our hearts. Our tale continues. Um, Reading the text again with the English name substituted in. It says, but my God is king, the husband of pleasant died. Verse 3. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. I didn't get into this week the names of the, uh, what the names of the Moabite wives meant. Um, Ruth means companion. I'm fairly sure that Orpah means uh, thick mane or thick neck. Either way, it wasn't flattering. Here's the second crisis. So it's bad enough that the, the patriarch, the head of the family, has died. Now, again, there's a choice. Do we go back to, to the promised land? Do we repent? Do we, do we go and, 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 and reconcile, be reconciled to the Lord? Or do we stay in Moab? Well, here's the second crisis. They've got a choice to make. They could repent. They could go back home to their own land and to their own God, or they could stay where they were in exile. And here was the choice. The choice was that they stayed. They still rated their prospects more highly in Moab than in Judah. They felt more at home in the land of compromise than in the land of promise. And as a result of that road not taken, Naomi's sons then took Moabite women as their wives, even though the law of Moses had commanded them not to do so in Deuteronomy 7. The thing about it is, friends, I know I've seen this true in my own life, and perhaps you have as well. Many times, the choice to step outside of the will of God, that first step is a doozy. And when you, when you are convicted, when you know that you're about to do something that is clearly outside of the will of God, it is, it is heart-wrenching. The problem, though, comes after you've made that choice, the subsequent choices to stay there become a whole lot easier. seems that once you've taken that step and started down that road, the subsequent choices just seem a lot easier to rationalize. So once we're in our dire straits, the path home seems too complicated, and so the choice to stay seems more easy. Think about what Jesus said in the parable of the prodigal son. When he went and he spent all of his money That's bad. Go home. Well, no. Now, the Jewish boy is playing with the pigs, feeding them pig food. That breaks all sorts of holiness and dietary and every other kind of of code. But he says, I'm already here. It's already bad. So why not just make it worse? 
They could have gone home. They could have stayed. But instead, they took Moabite women as their wives. So they lived there about 10 years. Verse 5. Weak and frail died. Like you couldn't see that one coming. Your name is weak and frail. So that the women were left without her two sons and her husband. You want to know how important the mother-son relationship was in the ancient Near East? I read a statistic that a business consultant had published. I think it was in the, uh, in the Harvard Business Review. They gave a, a test to, to businessmen, and they said, okay, there's a boat. In the boat is your mother, your wife, and your daughter. You can only save one. Who do you save? 60% of them saved their daughter. 40% of them saved their wife. Sorry, moms. <laughs> Nobody saved their mom. <laughs> the same question, however, was asked to Saudi Arabian businessmen. 100% of the time, they saved their mom. Why? Because the cultural relationship of the mother to the son was the foundation of life itself. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead, and she now has daughter-in-laws who are aliens. They aren't citizens of Judah. They're Moabite women. Her life has functionally come to a dead end. Her life is functionally over. Consider this. Uh, Paul Miller said this in his book, A Loving Life. He said, living outside of Israel, the promised land is already a partial death. Now, with the death of her husband and her two sons, Naomi's life is functionally over. It no longer has meaning or purpose. If you've ever experienced this level of deep, sustained suffering, then you know Naomi's frame of mind. Death would be a relief. She may not be suicidal, but if death came, she wouldn't mind it. Have you been there? Have you been in those spots where things are sad enough and dark enough that you didn't you didn't pass the litmus test of being suicidal. But things were so bad and so dark that if death came, you wouldn't mind. I've been there. Naomi was there. She's got no exit ramps. She's got no way out. This is her lot in life now. They have no protector. They have no head. Naomi's an aging widow in a family-oriented culture with no one to care for or about her. 
Look, it is not true to say that sin doesn't have consequences. Sin always has consequences. Those consequences had befallen Elimelech's family. They were disobedient. They received the judgment at the hand of God. Yet, God in his grace left a remnant of survivors. Even in the midst of consequences, the heart of God shines through. God's desire to restore wandering sinners to himself. Grace is always God's last word. So look, Naomi had forgotten that the promise that God made to Abraham was hers by birthright. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And though she could not see how God was at work, and though she could not see grace through her grief, the good news of the story is that though Naomi had forgotten all the promises that were made to her by God, God had not forgotten the promises that he had made to her. Though Naomi could not see God, God still saw her. And though her family's sin, though her sin, though her son's sin, all of these sins had consequences. And just because you're a person of faith, that doesn't nullify pain. It doesn't mean that pain goes away. And and tears, tears are still very real, even if trust in God is present What we're going to see over the coming weeks is that all of these things, though they are true, we will still see over and over and over again the gracious hand of God in the most unlikely of ways to bring about results that could only be of him. And that didn't stop being true just because the the canon of scripture is closed. Beloved, that is true in your life and that is true in my life. It is the reason that we celebrate Advent, not to get all sentimental and look back to a time, a simpler time, a manger and a, and a, and a feed trough. It's to look ahead to the author of the story who will put the final ending on this chapter of the story and usher in the story that is to come. If you're like Naomi, and her character will unfold more next week and your life just seems like it's functionally dead-ended there's hope if you're like a limelech whereby profession by name your god is king but by action god isn't very kingly in your life if you have sought your comfort and your security and your happiness over and above what God would have for your life, or said if God really loved you, he would want for you your comfort, your security, your happiness, here's the good news. I love what Ian Dugan says about this text. He says, whereas Elimelech left the place of famine to seek a false blessing in Moab, Jesus 
left the glories of heaven to bring us a true blessing on earth. Elimelech and Naomi sent themselves into exile from the land of promise, trying to build their own kingdom rather than waiting for God to do it. Jesus, though, went into exile from his father's presence so that he might rescue us from our own kingdom building and grant us a true and living future in his kingdom. The God who empties us and strips away, however painfully, those precious things in which we are trusting knows what it is to be stripped of all of his possessions, left alone and abandoned by his friends and hung empty on a cross. Where are you today? Have you found yourself not in the land of promise, but in the land of compromise? Have you found yourself having made that choice to step away from God's will for your life and now you feel like home is so incredibly far away? Do you feel like Naomi with all available options cut off? God is more willing to forgive than we are to repent. And the path home is that first step of God. I don't want to live in Moab anymore. It says, welcome home.